0: Well, change the city, transform the nation. And I suppose we could go on and say transform the nation, transform the world, really. But you have to start somewhere. And the idea of of changing a city is something that you can see throughout the Bible. It's as if God is a God who has cities on his heart. You know, a lot of people think that the ideal place to get to know God is in a garden. Well, it started in a garden, but it ends up in a city. (laughs) God ends up with a new Jerusalem. We've got a God who's not anti-city. We've got a God who understands that when we come together and live in community, it actually releases more of his blessing. Because there's something about when we dwell together in unity that he's able to command the blessing. And when we think about it, that, that coming together is a way in which in the Ephesian letter Paul says that we comprehend with all the sense what is the height, the depth, the length, the breadth. And so there's a sense about that togetherness. Cities should be great places, but unfortunately so often they're not great places. They're places where problems multiply rather than blessings multiply. So to change a city is a big assignment, but it's a great assignment. It brings you really close to the heart of God. Now, I know that just even those of us who are at the conference have come with different cities on our minds. Some of us are thinking of London, some of us are thinking of other cities around this nation. Others are here with cities far away on their hearts. I travel a lot, and I've got a lot of cities on my heart that I want to see change. So I'm going to share principles rather than specifics. Because I think that, you know, if you can take the principles and then work out the specifics, this will be a much better conference, because I won't be doing all the work. You'll be doing some of it, you see. You'll be thinking about the application. But as I was preparing, I was thinking, really, there are six big pointers that I would want to give for changing a city. And I'm going to try and cover them in five sessions. But six big pointers. And I'm going to give all of them to you now. I'm not one of these people who tries to hold it back as a surprise. I'd like you to know what it is up front. And the first one is to think strategically. If you're going to change a city, you've got to think strategically I'm going to look at that with you and then if you're going to change a city there needs to be a sense of ownership and you've got to own with authority so think strategically and own authoritatively with a sense of authority this is God's city you know you're putting your mark on the place The third thing I'd say is that if you're going to change a city, you've got to network effectively. You're not going to do it on your own. (laughs) So you've got to learn how to network effectively. The fourth one, and I thought long and hard about this, but looking at Scripture, I came to the conclusion that the fourth thing I'd want to bring to you is to teach consistently. Now, there's something in me that would have said, evangelize, you know, get out there. But there's also a sense in which, you know, I've seen things happen where the evangelistic impact hasn't changed the city. Because the people who've been evangelized don't have enough substance in order to bring the bigger transformation. So I, it's not that I'm saying that evangelism isn't right up there as a priority. But if we don't teach consistently, we're not going to see the kind of city change that we need to see. So, you know, there is a sense as well in which when you look at Paul's style of evangelism, he did a lot of his evangelism by teaching, reasoning, pointing things out. So that fits there too. So you've got the first four, think strategically, own authoritatively, network effectively, teach consistently, and then the fifth one I'd say is that you are to love fervently. Love fervently. You're not going to change a city if you're apathetic. If you love fervently, it's almost like saying that you're loving as hot as it can get. (laughs) Like at boiling point. And, And if you've got that kind of love, it's not going to be a love that's here today, gone tomorrow. It's got to be consistent, hasn't it? It's got to be there for people. So love fervently. And then, The final thing that I put down is to hope inspirationally. You know, you can have a hope that you've got, that's an inner confidence. But if it doesn't inspire the same kind of confidence in others, you're full of hope while everyone else is still hopeless. (laughs) And that's not going to change a city. So you need a hope that inspires. So those six things are the things that I really want to share with you, and I can see them throughout Scripture. So think strategically, own authoritatively, network effectively, teach consistently, love fervently, and hope inspirationally. Well, we're going to start by looking at thinking strategically, and I've got a key passage that I want to read from Acts 16. You'll all know this passage, but... Just follow it with me. Acts 16, and I'm reading from verse 1. Then Paul came to Derby and Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Now, when they'd gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they'd come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So, passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to him. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. I don't think Paul had any intention of going to Macedonia. He tried to go here, he tried to go there, he tried to go somewhere else. And in the end, God said, that's where I need you, Macedonia. And it's interesting in that the person whom he saw in that vision, said, come and help us. Now, Paul had a determination in his ministry that he didn't want to build on anyone else's foundation. So you would have thought that the last thing that he had in mind, ministry-wise, was helping. It sounds like you're coming alongside to provide additional assistance, doesn't it? And if you're a pioneer, you think, hold on a minute, I, I I want to be the person that's in there getting the breakthrough, not assisting someone else to bring the breakthrough. And yet the word that he had was so clear, you've got to come and help us. And I think that he had a challenge then because he was going with a helping ministry into an environment where he hadn't initially wanted to go. And yet, and I really do praise God for this. He was thinking strategically. He wasn't just saying, oh, I didn't want to be here in the first place. And and, and helping is not, not my way of doing it. I, I'm a leader. I like to make it all happen. But the word of God was clear. And what he does is he goes to Macedonia. But you see, God doesn't always give you every detail of the strategy. He expects you to be a strategist. So where are you going to go in Macedonia? It's a big place. It's not a city, it's a region. And so Paul has to think strategically. Where is the place from which I can have the greatest impact in Macedonia? And he says, I'm going to Philippi. Now, I've taken you down that little route in this passage because I think Until you get a strategic vision for the place that you want to change, you're not going to change anything. And you might be saying, I didn't intend to be here in the first place. I'd rather be changing somewhere else. But if God has sent you there, even if it wasn't your first choice, your second choice or your third choice, it's where God wants you to be. And you've got to get a vision for that place. Because if you're always trying to have a vision for somewhere else, you're not going to change where you are. And somewhere along the line, you've got to come to terms with where God has placed you. And you've got to begin to get a sense for that place where God has put you. And you've got to say, right God, I am actually here to help. Now that's a different mindset (laughs) from I'm here to take over and tell everyone everything. I'm, I'm here as a helper. And we're going to unpack that a little bit as we're looking at changing a city. But you've also got to think strategically, you've got to be able to come to a conclusion that the place that you're seeking to transform has significance beyond itself. Because if it's got significance beyond itself, it's going to increase your motivation to bring change. If all I'm doing is just changing it because really this place is such a mess, it needs tidying up a little bit. But if you've got a mindset which says, if I can tidy this place up, what a difference it's going to make to the region. If I can change Philippi, then I will have impacted Macedonia. And if I've impacted Macedonia, it will go out from there across the nations. So you can see that this thinking strategically is really important. And you're going to have to do a little bit of work in your own hearts and minds in order to take some of the things I'm going to share and say, now, how does that work in my situation? Now, I'm not going to ask you to do something else. I'm going to trust you with something that history has shown to be a big risk. A lot of the things I'm going to do in this conference, I'm actually going to use Jerusalem as a model. Not because I think Jerusalem is the model we've all got to copy or claim that we're all living in the new Jerusalem or that we're going to turn where we are into Jerusalem or that we say where we are is Jerusalem. But actually, there's a whole lot of information about Jerusalem in the Bible which gives us principles for city change and national transformation. So when I say I'm trusting you with this, I'm reckoning... (laughs) That you can handle what lots of people in history haven't. You see, I can think of all kinds of examples where nations have come off the rails because they suddenly decided that they were Zion City of our God and that they were God's chosen people and that all the promises that applied to Israel automatically applied to their little plot of land. I'm not asking you to do that. You've got to have that ability to say, that is that place, this is this place you're not going to rename London the new Jerusalem. But there are principles that we can learn from the way that Jerusalem was a transformed city that was able to bring transformation to a nation that will help us understand as well. You can see all kinds of things that have gone wrong. Even in the British Isles, you could say that there were times when, particularly the Celtic fringe has sort of taken its Protestantism to the point where they were saying, you know, Scotland is the place where God dwells. Or, you know, Ireland is the place where God dwells. Almost claiming an exclusiveness. And then, of course, we had William Blake write, and did those feet in ancient times, walk upon England's pleasant land, and will Jerusalem be... And the answer is, no, it won't be. But (laughs) his thinking was not, quite where everyone puts it. He wasn't saying, was Jerusalem here? It's almost as if he's saying, what if Jerusalem was here? And there's a little bit of that what if thinking that I would like you to do. So that you're thinking, well, hold on, there's strategic policy that we can take hold of." And I'm just going to suggest three things to you. There's a principle of sacrifice that's really important. And if you can see strategically where sacrifice fits in, that's going to make a difference. The second word I want to give you is stronghold, and I'm going to come and unpack that a little bit later on. So sacrifice and stronghold. But the third one I've already alluded to, and that is centrality. You've got to see significance for your city, that it's it's, it's, it's got something that's, that's central to a bigger outcome. So they're just simple words, but sacrifice, stronghold, and centrality. And I want you, if you're going to be a strategic thinker, to think about that. Now, we might all be thinking about different cities. That's not a problem, you know? I spent a lot of time on one point working out how to transform Kingston in Jamaica. And I got involved in that, led, uh, involved in uh, a, a Justice for Jamaica campaign and was out there. And and I could see the same principles. Karachi in Pakistan, another city that I have prayed over for transformation. Joss in Nigeria, done a lot in Joss. And I could go around the world, and I'm I'm telling you that the same kind of principles can apply in every place. And one of the first things you've got to see is the principle of sacrifice. Now, I just want to show you something in Scripture that will give you a little bit of an insight into the significance of Jerusalem. So if you turn with me to Genesis 22, we're going to read a story which you probably don't think has got anything to do with Jerusalem at all. But in Genesis 22, we read this. And it's such a familiar story, you could probably tell it to me but I'm going to read it to you instead. So Genesis 22. I'm going to read the first two verses and then pick up from verse 11. It says, It came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham? And he said, Here I am. Then God said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Then you know that Abraham rose early, he went, and he actually spoke to the young man and said, we're going to worship, and we are going to come back to you. So there was a, a, a still a confidence that God was going to do something remarkable. When you read Hebrews 11, you, you can see that there was a sense in which Abraham believed that even if he slew his son, God would raise him back to life again. But you know, God's not in the business of of, of slaying anyone else's son other than his own. This was a test. It wasn't, as it were, a wish on the part of the Almighty. And so what you find when you get to verse 11 is this, but the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked. And there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horn. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now I want you to see two things from there. Number one, the The thing that Abraham came down with is the Lord provides. Now, most preachers, when they preach this passage, will say, just everything except that. You know, This was really important that Abraham was willing to offer his son because it was a prototype of God offering his son. Actually, the lesson that God was trying to teach Abraham was very simple. I will always provide. The nations around you might be offering their sons, but you don't have to offer your sons. Because I will provide. And and sometimes we miss the obvious. The lesson is God provides. You don't have to lay down your life for God. God has laid down his life for you. You don't have the ability to save yourself from sin. But God has saved us from sin. We cannot pay the price for sin. But God has paid the price for sin. God provides. It should shout off the page at you. God provides. But the other thing, it actually says this, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So it was a specific provision in a specific place. And you, you wonder when you start reading this, why is God being so fussy? He says, you're to offer him on a mountain that I will show you. <laughs> and in the mount of the Lord, I will provide. So what was this mount? Well, look, just look on with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 3, if you would. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, we have the account of, well, really the location of the temple in Solomon's time. And it says this in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on mount moriah now did you notice that in genesis 22 go to the land of moriah to the mount that i will show you when you read carefully jerusalem was a place of sacrifice where god provided the sacrifice now that makes an incredible amount of difference it shows that God's attention is focused on a location. Now, if you don't believe that God's attention is focused on the location that your attention is focused on, you are wasting your time. Because except the Lord build the house, they labour in vain that built it. Except the Lord save the city, those who try and save the city or change the city you're laboring in vain. You need to know that God has your location as a priority. Because otherwise you're going to be praying and imploring, but without the conviction. <laughs> and so this, this commitment that God had made all those years ago, now, you know, that was so far back in the history of this city, Jerusalem, that I don't think most people had even put it together. They thought that the most strategic thing that had happened on that site was that David had had an encounter with the angel of the Lord and the plague had stopped at that site on the threshing floor. But actually, even before that incident, God had had his focus on the place. Now, you need to know those kind of things. Now... As I say, Jerusalem's unique. Abraham didn't go all around the world offering Isaac only to present a lamb in its place. He didn't come to do that in London. He didn't come and do it in Nottingham. He didn't come and do it in, in Joss. He didn't do it in Kingston. He did it in Jerusalem, all right? But somehow you've got to know that God has got a concern for your city. Now I want to ask you a question. Of course, in the end, the true Lamb of God was offered on exactly that mountain. Jesus died there, didn't he? He died in Jerusalem. Now, when Jesus died in Jerusalem, did he die for the sins of Jerusalem only? Was that the only city that was on his heart? If when he was on that cross, he was able to see the travail of his soul and be satisfied, and to lay down his life for every single person who has been born on this human into this human race, then surely we could say that if there was redemption for Jerusalem in what Jesus was doing, then that redemption is more widespread. There's something. If God is passionate about any city, there's a sense in which God can be passionate about every city. But you might say, well... That one was so special. There was a sacrifice that was so special. Do you know, I think you'll find that when you look into the history of any city, you will be able to detect a pattern of sacrifice. You might not see it straight away. And and a lot of us, you know, when I'm saying that Paul's mindset was to come to Macedonia and help. And some of us today... We go into a place and we have absolutely no idea that anyone before us has ever done anything in that place. But I'm telling you that, I mean, if you labour in this city of London, there are people that are spiritual giants that have given absolutely everything they've got into this city. Does that count for something? You know, we're here to help. We are, we are just the next generation that stepped in. Now, if you can say that about London, where, yeah, you can check the church history books. There's been a lot of work done in London by all sorts of people. And I could give you statistics that would surprise you just to show how great the gospel impact has been in this city. People who've laid down their life for this capital city and this nation. Incredibly so. So don't come in and thinking you're the first one to do it. And that if there's transformation, it's all down to little you. There have been people that have been laboring. I remember the first time I brought in a certain prophetic ministry from Malaysia into this country. And uh, it was at a time when everyone was asking the question, you know, what is it over the city? And, you know, there were people saying, well, it's a spirit of unrighteous trade. And someone else was saying, it's a spirit of this. So I said to him, what do you think is over this city? He said, the biggest cloud of blessing that I've ever seen over a city anywhere. He said, if you could just reach up and touch it, you could release something into this environment that goes beyond your greatest imaginings. You just think of what's laid up over the city by people who've labored over it, prayed over it. Now, that can actually happen with people that haven't been in the city, you know. There was a a missionary to China, James Outram Fraser, and he used to tell people in London to get a map of China and to pray over the map in the headquarters of the Missionary Society. And so people would gather around that map and they would pray over the map. They didn't even know how to pronounce the names on the map, but they prayed over the map. And you know, his testimony, it's in his book, it's clear as anything, he said, If I went into an area that had been prayed for, it was like taking a match into an area where the wood had been dried. But if I tried to go into an area that no one had prayed for, it was like going to try and light wet wood. (laughs) Nothing burnt. So it's that willingness to sort of lay down your life realizing that Jesus has laid down his life. And the small amount that we can do, which we sometimes think of as a sacrifice, just adds to the other sacrifices that have been made even before you came. It takes sacrifice to change a city. It's not a small thing. If They say that to turn a tanker when it's at sea, is something that takes time. (laughs) Changing a city is not a small thing either. To make it going a different direction, you need to realize that it's going to take a lot. It's going to take a lot of prayer. It's going to take a lot of sacrifice. It's going to take a lot. But if you can start with that sense that God has got his eye on the place. It's not just you. It's not just you having to persuade God. Actually, it was God persuading you even before you started persuading him. He's the one who got you there in the first place. And some of us are thinking, well, now I've got here, I've got to get God here. Listen, God was here before you got there. And that gives it hope. And you're just part of the pattern. But sacrifice is an important key to thinking strategically? Can you put sacrifice into your strategic thinking? And to realize that a price has been paid. Because otherwise, the price that you will try to pay for the city will never reach the purchase price. You've got to realize a price has been paid. And, And when you see that, then you're into a whole different realm, aren't you? You know if you've ever been in a situation where i I can hardly imagine it, but just just think for a moment that you're trying to persuade someone to to give you something and and they're saying you can't have it because it costs this much, and then you could say to them, "But the money's already in your bank account, give it to me. Can you see the the difference it makes? It's easier to take something off someone when the price has already been paid for it. Let me move on to the next word. Because one of the things that I'm aware of is this, that some of us are intimidated when we start looking at the places where God has put us. (laughs) It looks like a stronghold, and we think, how are we ever going to break into this stronghold? And, I mean, I preach series on breaking strongholds and everything else, and, and I'm sure some of you have too. But... What you've got to do if you're a strategic thinker is to look at a stronghold and to say to yourself, this negative stronghold can become a positive stronghold. To be able to see the strength of resistance becoming a positive strength to take things forward. Now, David was able to do this with... Jerusalem. In fact, you know, he, he, he writes in one of the Psalms, Psalm 48 is a good example, where he talks about Jerusalem. Just going to read a little bit of the second part of this Psalm, Psalm 48 from verse 11. It says this, the sons of Korah. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of your judgments. Walk about Zion and go all around her. Count her towers. Mark well her bulwarks. Consider her palaces that you may tell it to the generation following. For this is God, our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to death. Do you see what he's saying? He says, look look at Jerusalem. Walk around her. Count the towers. Mark well her bulwarks. those Those points of strength. Consider her palaces that you may tell it. Now, all of those things are natural uh, are, are are added strengths, but there's a natural strength that underlies everything. Now, how do I know that? <laughs> well, I'll tell you. Joshua fifteen sixty three. You don't have to go to all these references if you don't want to. I'll read them to you, but you can make a note of it just so that you can find it again. Joshua fifteen sixty three. It says this, as for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah could not drive them out. But the Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Do you know why the children of Israel couldn't drive them out? Because it was a stronghold. There was nothing particularly special about the Jebusites. They were just like all of the otherites. They'd sinned up to the hill and God said, you've got to go. But the difference between the Jebusites and all the otherites was that the Jebusites occupied Jerusalem. And it was almost like a natural fortification. There was a stronghold. It was on a hill. It was in a place that gave it advantage and and you know that they, they, they couldn't they just couldn't be shifted. Now they couldn't be shifted in Joshua's day. They couldn't be shifted through the times of the judges, they couldn't be shifted in Samuel's day, and they were still there when David became king. And you know he was anointed by Samuel while Saul had still got a considerable amount of his reign ahead of him. So it gave David an opportunity to strategize. Now, have you ever thought that he strategized? I know you thought that he just sat and plucked his guitar in the fields and sang to the sheep. No, he didn't. He strategized. He thought, I am the anointed king. One day I will take over this nation. Where will be my capital city? (laughs) Where am I going to transform this nation from? Will it be Bethlehem? I love to drink from the well of Bethlehem. But actually, it's great having a place where you can drink from the well, but it doesn't mean the place where you drink from the well is the place where you're going to transform the nation. So he's saying, where will be my capital city? And he looks at this place, and it is the most impossible place. Now this should encourage those of you who think God has sent you to the most impossible place in the world. Because that was what this city was. It wasn't called Jerusalem at this point. It was called Jebusi. There's a sense in which maybe there was something there before that had got that Salem title attached to it because you know Melchizedek was king of Salem. But by the time the Jebusites were holding on to it, because Melchizedek was around in Abraham's day, But the Jebusites are holding on to this place and they've called it Jebusi. A stupid name because it means downtrodden. (laughs) But actually, (laughs) they were living in a stronghold, but what they were doing with the stronghold was not worthy of its potential. Now, if you see a city that is downtrodden It doesn't mean that it's a city without potential. It's a city that's potential has never been realized. And that should give you a hope in your heart. If you're thinking strategically, think sacrifice, but think stronghold. What are the strengths in this place? You might be living in a village, okay? And your city might just be a village, And you're thinking, this message is great for people who live in capital cities with influence, but your village can actually have an impact beyond its immediate location. If you can think sacrifice, stronghold, and centrality. But the stronghold might not be evident at first glance. It might look downtrodden, and you think, you're never going to do anything with this place. God, take me somewhere else. But on the other hand, you might look at it and think, it's not that this place is downtrodden. This place is actually a fortress I'm never going to break into. So both of these things can be going on. You know, I hear people talk about London. And sometimes when people are talking about London, you think it's the worst place on the planet, okay? It really is, it, you know, some people talk about it, and they, they have to big it up because they're missionaries here, and so therefore they've got to tell the folk back home that they're dealing with the world's worst mission field. <laughs> Otherwise, you know, the support stops. So you, you've got to make it sound bad, folks. So th- this is downtrodden. But the same people who give you the impression it's downtrodden, next week they'll be giving you the impression it's a fortress. How are you going to break into this place? Well, make up your mind. What is it? Is it weak or is it strong? Is it this or is it that? Sometimes it's confusing, knowing whether what you're looking at is something that's got no potential or is so strong you can't even break into it to release the potential. But the good news is that whichever way you look at it, God's got a solution for it. And one of the things that you can do very often is you can see the things that intimidate you and realize that if you turn those around, they're going to intimidate the enemy. So that which looks like an impossibility becomes something that turns into a strength. And when David strategically thought about Jerusalem, even though the Jebusites occupied it, even though it was named downtrodden, and even though it did look a bit impregnable set on that hill, he was still saying, I'm going to go for that. I'm going to go for that. And the great thing about David, he never did anything half-heartedly. Even when he sinned, unfortunately. <laughs> he, he, he had something there and he would go for it. And, and that was the way he thought about Jerusalem. He saw the stronghold. I don't know how much he thought through about the sacrifice, but he sensed there was a significance about the place. You, you've got to sense there's a significance about the place that you're going to change. You've got to sense there's a significance. Because when you start bringing that change, the significance that you feel for it is actually going to lead to the greater impact. And what else can we say? Because I think that there are things that we can turn around. But at the beginning of Psalm 48, I read the end of it to you. But at the beginning of Psalm 48, these sons of Korah, whether it was for them or by them, you can make up your own mind. It says this at the beginning of Psalm 48, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, in his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth, Is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king? God is in her palaces. He's known as her refuge. For behold, the kings assembled. They passed by together. They saw it. And so they marveled. They were troubled. They hastened away. Fear took hold of them there. And pains as a woman in birth pains. As when you break the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish it forever. (laughs) It sounds there, doesn't it? Like Jerusalem is the center of the earth. Kings are going to look at this and they're going to quake. They're going to be broken as they look at this. You know what happened to the Queen of Sheba when she came? (laughs) She saw it all and it's just like the strength went out of her. She said, the half had never been told me it had never been told me and it wasn't just about solomon's wealth there was something about the place where he was that had an impact on him you know you need to get a sense of centrality and and you can see it with with paul's strategy in going to philippi if i can get that place then i will have this level of impact That's why I'm saying, if you can change a city, you can change a nation. But you've got to have a mindset, a strategic mindset, that says that it is possible. Now, a lot of that has to do with the way that you think. (laughs) Because if you are just dismissive about the place where you are, it's not going to change anything. You're going to change that and it's going to do nothing. But if you've got that mindset which says, you know, it will make a difference. You know, if, if I paint the outside of my house, it might make the west of my, rest of my street wake up to paint the outside of their houses, you know? It, it could work like that. If I if I change my my city here, if I change my village, it could affect the valley. <laughs> it could affect the county. People say, you can't do anything with rural churches. Well, do something in your rural community to tell the world that a revival can begin in a place that's hard to find on the map. And I could take you to a place where revival began, where it was hard to find it on the map. Because people believe that this little village, where there were hardly any houses, could be the centre of one of the biggest revivals this nation has known. They just believed it could happen here. I mean, when I was a student, people used to flock to this place. And when I went and found it a few years back, I don't know how anybody had ever found it. In fact, I even found myself saying, God, how did you find this place? Because it just seemed to be nowhere. But the people who worship there had a sense of its centrality. It's the center of something. God can do something from here. You know, and I know I said that when we look at Jerusalem, you can't automatically claim that which is Jerusalem's for your own. But you can take some of the principles and you can see that if you see a significance in a place, it actually emboldens you to make a transformation. If you believe that what you do can be looked upon by leaders, you know, different places around the world host conferences. I remember going into a certain country just after they'd had the Commonwealth Heads of Government conference there. I had never seen the airport in that place look so tidy. You know, they knew the Queen was coming. I think the Queen's deceived into thinking the whole world is covered in new paint. I don't think they let her go anywhere that wasn't painted yesterday. So, you know, she thinks that's what it's like. Well, the rest of us know it isn't. But when I got to this nation. It had been transformed because of the Commonwealth Heads of Government. You know, you have another conference, you know, a NATO conference in a in a in a in a town in Wales and suddenly it's the big news. Everyone's there. I was there a few weeks ago. It was nothing then. I actually was in the hotel that they've all been in. It was nothing then. But suddenly it's everything. And you've got to have the ability to believe that, that your your place that seems like nothing. Could be a place where suddenly attention is focused on it. Now that shouldn't be your only motivation. Because there's a sense in which it's just worth changing things for the glory of God. But there is a sense too in which our God is so great that the more we can do to magnify Him, the better. Have you ever thought about that extraordinary statement where Paul says, magnify God in your body? How can I magnify God? I mean, surely God is so big that he doesn't need me to be the lens through which everyone sees him. But there is a sense that when you become the lens through which everyone sees God, they see God in a different way. Because believe it or not, there are people looking at you thinking, well, if God can change you, he can change anybody. (laughs) You might not have thought about it like that. But that, that's how we magnify God. Just because in our humanity, the transformation is something that then has a greater impact. Now just think about that. Change a community. Is that a way of magnifying God? Of course it is. People are looking and say, well, if God can do that in this location, wow, he must be God. He <laughs> can do it anywhere. But you need to have that sense in your heart too. This is strategic thinking. I'm not asking you to relocate because God's probably located you exactly where he wants you to be unless you're doing the Jonah thing and going in the opposite direction. (laughs) But he may have taken you through your first choice, your second choice, your third choice to get you where he wants you to be. But now he's got you there, you're there to help. And there will be those who've made sacrifices in that place. Almost certainly. People who prayed over that place. And you're there to help. You're not the only. God is the only. When he says, I am that I am, you don't stand up alongside and go, and I am too. It just doesn't work like that. When you see who he is, it puts everything else into perspective. We're just here to help. And we need to see that. But it changes everything when we begin to think strategically. David thought strategically. He might not have been able to link it all together. The land of Moriah, the mountain that God showed. But he knew that there was a stronghold. A city that was called Jebusi, downtrodden. And it was a a natural vantage point. And it had so much strength that no one had been able to take it. But he said that if that place could be God's place. It could have a level of centrality which from changing the city you could transform the nation. God's a strategic thinker. He wants us to take these principles. How did David build his Zion vision? Do you know, I think sometimes he would would go that way. Hmm? I don't know. It's a bit like All those years ago, Moses, looking after his father-in-law's sheep. Where did he take them? The Bible says he took them to the backside of the desert. That is not where sheep normally like to go. (laughs) Why did he take them there? Because he wanted to go to Mount Horeb, which was known as the mountain of God. And he had an encounter with God in that place, didn't he? He had an encounter with God. Some of us are sort of looking for the wrong things. We're looking, we're looking for lush grass where in fact we should be looking for the encounter with God. And, And God wants you to have an encounter with Him. And, and you can see that, that David had a different mindset. I, I, I can see God doing something in that place. So I want you to start getting, you know, even, we'll look at this a little bit more in the next session, but you're not necessarily able to take on a capital city at first glance. But there may be something that God's saying to you about a district or a region or a location. And you might be able to say, sacrifice here. Do you know when Paul arrived in Galatia, and there's a little bit of a discussion about the Galatian letter. He calls it the letter to the Galatians. Had he been, this is the big discussion, <laughs> to North Galatia or South Galatia? South Galatia doesn't normally get called Galatia. It's like Ionia and Lystra, Derby, Iconium, those places. Pisidia, Antioch's down there. And so there's a discussion, you know, did he have another mission to the north of Galatia? And is the letter to the people who lived in the north, the Gauls? Well, actually, to me it doesn't really matter. What stands out to me in the Galatian letter is, he says this to them, he said, you know, let me read it to you. I'm just going to read a couple of verses as I just bring this to a close. In, in the first chapter of the letter to the Galatians, and just for the moment, just suppose he's writing to the people in the southern part of Galatia. The people of Lystra, Iconium, Derby, those places. What does he say? Well, it says this in chapter 3, verse 1. Oh foolish Galatians! Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified among you. Well, we know that Jesus didn't die in either northern Galatia or southern Galatia. Lystra, Iconium, Antioch in Pisidia, Derby, didn't die in those places. He died in Jerusalem. What's Paul talking about? Maybe it was just his dramatic preaching that just was able to show that, that when Jesus died, He died for them too. But actually there's another little clue in the letter. And it says this in chapter 4. Verse 13. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject. But you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Now, there are all sorts of interpretations for that. Some people say maybe Paul had an eye infection and they would have sort of gladly sort of spared him the pain that he was going through and had done something for him. I don't know, and I, I'm, I'm not going to try and make a theological point out of this. I don't think this was the thorn in the flesh, for example. But I tell you what I do know, is that when Paul preached the gospel, he was prepared to pay whatever price it took. And if he did have a physical thing that he was battling against, and believing God for his healing, you know, we've all been there, haven't we? Okay, God, I, I, I am battling with a health problem, we might be saying but I've still got to preach this message. So I'm going to get up there and I'm going to preach it come what may. That's sacrifice. That's sacrifice. And maybe it was that kind of sacrifice that people could say, and even Paul could say, Christ was portrayed as crucified among you. You just got a glimpse. (laughs) I was paying a small price. He's paid a big price. But it speaks, doesn't it? It speaks. It's just that willingness. That's, that is Paul, the strategic thinker. And we've looked at David, the strategic thinker. And God's looking at you and saying, you are a strategic thinker. Think strategically. There's been sacrifice. It's a stronghold it can change. You can see it as a centrality from which there can be an impact way beyond the immediate location. But if you begin to think like this, it changes everything. This is why this is session one. I'm not doing think strategically as, uh, at the end. <laughs> I'm doing think strategically now because it's thinking strategically that will enable you to own authoritatively. And that is just so important. And that's where we go to in the next session. So let me just pray and seal this word that, that we've had as we've looked at this together. Father, I thank you, Lord, for this company of strategic thinkers that you brought together. And Lord, I, I don't know how you're asking the people here to take the city. Some will be intercessors. Some will be evangelists. Some will be teachers. Some will be pastors. Some will have gift of governance and prophetic gifts. But Lord, whatever gifts you've given us, Lord, we need to be able to think strategically. So I just pray that even as we have time between this session and the next to reflect, that you might build something in our hearts that's really going to enable us to go forward in our ministries, in our locations, To bring change that will lead to transformation. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Great.